Thank you, brother. If you haven't already turned there, I want to invite you to join me in Philippians chapter 1 as we look at a few more verses this morning in our study of this precious book, Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to just look at verses 12 through 20 this morning. And we're calling this, uh, this message an unexpected victory, as that's what we're going to see Paul experience, this, this unexpected work of God in the midst of his suffering. Um, in fact, this, this is kind of a shift here in verse 12 from Paul's introduction. The first 11 verses are his welcome. He tells them what he's praying for. He tells them that he's thankful for them. And now he's sort of getting to the body of his letter. And he's, he's going to let them know uh, or address one of the reasons that he's actually writing this letter. He wants them to know that he's okay. The Philippians had shown concern. They heard he was in prison. And they, they were reaching out, like, how's he doing? There were probably rumors. Uh, that they, they, he, he wanted to, to comfort them and let them know that, that he was doing okay. And so he says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. And so I, I didn't put, I was having trouble outlining this in a way that made sense to me, and so I didn't put any notes on the screen. But if, if you're write, writing things down, you could say something like this, that, that suffering advances the gospel. Suffering advances the gospel. He says, I want you to know that what's happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. Paul doesn't dwell on the inconvenience of his imprisonment. He's not taking this opportunity that we probably would, would say, hey, he has every right to do, to, to, to complain about it, to, to whine, to say, listen, I can't believe that I'm stuck in this situation. No, he says, he says this circumstance, this situation has actually served to advance the gospel. Well, just let's catch up on a, se a second on what exactly has happened to him. We know that he's in prison, but how did, how did he get there? Well, back in Acts chapter 20, we can piece together that he was, he was told by the Holy Spirit that when he goes to Jerusalem to proclaim the gospel, that he was going to be thrown in prison. Just, he, God gave him a heads up and said, listen, just so you know, this is coming. And that's exactly what happened. That There was um, some false accusations, uh, uh, the, the, the religious mob got together, and um, it, he, he was um, thrown into a Roman prison. He escaped flogging only because he pleaded his citizenship. And, and, and the whole case, if we're understanding the flow of Acts correctly, leading up to what, what we would say his, his Roman imprisonment here, which we're, we're saying that's where he wrote Philippians from, from Rome, probably. Uh, this was all a, a mockery of justice. Um, even though he was innocent of his charges, he was, um, he was mocked, he was misrepresented, he was kept in prison by uh, corrupt officials, and it, it only got worse. He was going to be sent to Rome, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 27. On his way there, on his way to go to trial, he suffers a shipwreck, so as if his situation wasn't bad enough and is stranded on a, on a, on a semi-deserted island, and uh, eventually they get to Rome. Uh, it's like a two-year process 
where he's been in prison and been trying to get to his trial. He finally makes it there, and now he's in, in, stuck in Rome in a prison awaiting this trial. And we don't know exact, his exact circumstances. The, the first week we were in Philippians, we said he could be in a prison cell. Some scholars think that maybe he was under house arrest because he's able to interact with people, has visitors coming and going, Epaphroditus, Timothy, uh, others. So some think that maybe he was under house arrest. But regardless, he has had this awful situation in his life. And, and he's gone through all of these things. And he says, all of this has happened to me to serve to advance the gospel. What an astounding thing to say. That, that word advance is a Greek word. It's a, it's a military word to talk about uh, paving the way for a military advancement. They're going before and, and clearing the way, making, maybe it's like what the Army Corps of Engineers does and, and getting, getting ready. They're the advance party so that the, the, the combat unit can come in behind them and, and, and have a successful progress as they move towards the enemy lines. And he's saying, listen, the gospel has done this. The gospel has advanced even in the midst of this awful situation. How did it happen? What was taking place? Well, he says, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. So the first thing he says is that the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. What does that mean? Well, some scholars, they're a little bit divided on what he means by imperial guard. Some think it could be a place, like an actual location uh, where, the, where the military was based. Um, others say he's talking about people. And I, I, given his circumstances, I tend to think he's talking about the people, that the gospel has advanced throughout the people of the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard, or the Imperial Guard, were, were the, were the, they were the closest ones to Caesar. They would have been his, his elite commanders, his elite troops that would have been serving. That's why most scholars believe he's in Rome here, because uh, they would have been near and, and part of Caesar's household and, and, and there was about roughly, uh, Peter O'Brien says there's roughly about 9,000 of them there in Rome. And, and Paul's message was impacting them directly. These officials, these pagans were getting to know Jesus because of Paul's imprisonment. So let me just imagine what this looks like. Paul's, let's say he is under house arrest. You send one or two guards there and, 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 and they're hanging out in the house. People are coming in to visit Paul, other believers, uh, ambassadors from other churches. And he's having conversations with them about Jesus. He's teaching them the word of God. He's helping them understand the scriptures. And you've got this guard who some believe was actually physically chained to Paul, sitting there in the corner, hearing the gospel proclaimed all day long. And you can imagine, even when Paul doesn't have visitors, and he's sitting in a room with a pagan, an unbeliever, you think Paul's just sitting there taking a nap all day? He's, he's sharing Christ with this person. And what Paul, I think, is saying is that some of these guards, these elite guards who would be close to Caesar, they're actually getting saved. People who are, who are part of the government were getting saved because of Paul's imprisonment. Paul's saying, listen, guys, I couldn't have scripted this. 
You, you, you think that by chaining up the number one missionary in the, in the New Testament, the number one church planner, the, the number one itinerant minister who's going around and starting and strengthening churches all over, the guy that, that wrote 13 or 14 books of the New Testament, you would think that by putting him in prison, the, the, the obvious outcome is that the gospel is being chained up. And Paul says, no, it's actually furthered the gospel. This is crazy. Paul says God has taken these circumstances and used them to take the gospel into places it never would have went. My, my brothers and sisters, God, don't miss the significance of verses 12 and 13. God is going to bring you and I into situations that, that we have a choice in how we respond. Situations that we wouldn't sign up to be in. If Paul were given the choice, hey, do you want to continue to remain free or do you want to go to prison, Paul? I don't want to pretend to read his mind, but I would assume he would say free. I got a lot of work to do. I got letters to write. I got churches to visit, new cities to go preach in. I would imagine if he had a choice, he would rather have not gone to prison. And yet, these circumstances came into his life, these unwelcome circumstances, and they've turned out for a greater furtherance of the gospel. If all we hear is Paul's first century situation in this, we're missing God's word for us today. God reminds us that he brings us through situations and circumstances that are unwanted and unwelcome. Right? We've all been there. Some of you are in the middle of them right now. You didn't sign up for them. You're not in them because you made some stupid decision. We get, we get those too, right? It's not your fault. It's not your choice. You didn't sign up for it, and yet here you are. This medical diagnosis, this unbelieving child, this, this hurtful relationship, this, this struggle with coworkers, you name it. And yet, God has you here. And if, when we come to these trials in life, we can go one of two ways. We can go down the path of, man, this is not fair. I do not deserve to belong here. That person there, they screwed me over and now I'm stuck here. I didn't ask for this. I didn't sign up for this. This isn't my fault. We can go down that path, and that path, my brothers and sisters, is the path that leads to bitterness and hardness of heart. That's the path that shakes its fist against God and says, you're not good. Otherwise, you wouldn't have allowed this. Now, we all have those moments, but if we don't check up, if we continue down that path, that's the road to bitterness. Or we can respond like Paul, not complaining, not whining, and, and, and we can say, okay, God, I'm here. What's next? I, I, I'm not welcoming this circumstance. I'm not excited about this suffering. Nowhere in Scripture does it say we need to be thankful for that bad thing that's in our life. Nowhere are we told that we have to be thankful that this relative died or that, that this can't. We, we can be thankful for the circumstance and, and the work that God's doing in the midst of it. We're never ever told to pray for suffering, by the way. 
But suffering is the training ground where we grow closer to Jesus and where God begins to do things if we're willing to let him. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Paul was, I mean, Paul, Paul was an anomaly. Paul was weird. Paul was, Paul was not normal. But Paul wasn't perfect. He was still a human being. We have to believe that there are moments he woke up and he, he, he roused himself or was, you know, woken by the chains rattling or whatever, and he saw those on his wrist, and there had to be times where he's like, oh, come on, I just, I just want to go for a walk. I just want to be able to go tell that city over there about Jesus. And I'm so, okay, so having the right attitude in our suffering doesn't mean that we're not human and we don't have those moments. Read the Psalms for goodness sakes. David was a man after God's own heart, but there are times where he's shaking his fist. He just didn't let that become the trajectory of his life. Does that make sense? Go there, but don't stay there. And there had to be times where Paul was like, I don't want these chains anymore. But yet he saw that God was doing something in the midst of our circumstances. What would, it, what would it do if you and I, when we're hit with that next thing, whatever that thing is, even if it's just, even if it's a bad morning with the kids driving you bonkers and, and, and you feeling frustrated and you're like, why again? Why did I even have kids? What is, what's going on here? What, what was I thinking? Like in those moments, what would we do if we, we stopped and hit pause for a second and say, okay, God, there's, there's this thing right going, here, going on right now and I'm in the middle of it and I didn't choose this. I didn't necessarily want this, but what are you doing right now in my heart? What are you doing right now in the, in the lives of the people around me? What, what, what would it look like for us to hit pause in that moment? This is, this is Christian maturity. I'm not saying that this is easy stuff to do. And we're not going to get it right 100% of the time. But what would it look like if we hit pause and said, God, what are you doing right now? How am I supposed to grow through this? What are you calling me to, 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 to do for you and your kingdom here in this moment? And that's what Paul did. He took this opportunity to say, okay, I'm here. I've got chains. Oh, hey, there's somebody chained to me. Let me tell you about my friend Jesus. And day in and day out, the guards rotating in, they had to be nudging each other like, dude, this guy's a piece of work. And you're like, what do you mean? He's just like this little Jewish guy. What's, what's he going to do? He's not a hardened criminal. Like, I'm just here and it'll be an easy day, easy shift. I'm like, wait till you hear what he has to say. And the word was getting through to hearts and those hearts were taking the word back and, and the gospel was spreading in, in places that it shouldn't have been spreading because Paul said, here I am, Lord. What are you doing? Kurt Thompson has written, he said, when you look from the standpoint of the biblical narrative and even in light, and Kurt Thompson's a psychologist, a, a Christian psychologist, he says, from the standpoint of both the biblical narrative and in light what we're, of what we're discovering about neuroscience, suffering, while not God's ideal intention, is a necessary element in our becoming our truest, most beautiful, and most heaven-ready selves. It's an unavoidable reality of life, one that God plainly does not fully deliver us from in the time frame we would like, if ever, God uses suffering to shape us. And if we truly believe him and his word, great, we can see great things are happening. And Paul was getting a little glimpse and seeing what God was doing through his suffering. But it goes even more, further than that because we see that suffering brings boldness. 
You see, suffering isn't just about us and what we're going through and what God's trying to do in our hearts. There's that. We'll come back to that in a moment. But suffering is also about the way it impacts other people. Look at verses uh, look at verse 14. Most of the brothers, he says, have gained confidence in the Lord for my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. You see what's happening? Not only was Paul getting new avenues to share the gospel, but then other Christians were saying, man, if, if Paul is staying faithful in prison, if Paul can, can focus on Jesus and proclaim the gospel even in these awful circumstances, then I could do this too. I, I, I'm not in jail. I, I can travel around. I, I got someone who's willing to help support me in the ministry, or I got Fridays off. I could go talk to somebody about Jesus. This is great. They were being emboldened. They were being encouraged through his life and example. Francis Chan tells a story about how one of the pastors in his church in Southern California was driving and, and of course, Southern California, there's traffic, it was, it was a congested area, and the car in front of him uh, uh, hit, accidentally hit a bicyclist and, and knocked them off. Didn't, didn't hit them and severely injure them, but it, it knocked them uh, enough to where he fell off his bicycle. And, and the driver of the car was an elderly gentleman. And this bicyclist got up and was just livid, and he started pounding on the elderly guy's uh, uh, hood of his car. And then he came around to the driver's side door and opened it up and started beating on the old man in the car. And the pastor is in the car behind it, like, oh my goodness, this is really happening. What do I do? And he just felt like he needed to get out and intervene and, and help protect this, this elderly guy. And so he gets out, and he's trying to get this guy off of him. And so the, the guy starts swinging at him. And, and, and just will not calm down. And he's like, man, I'm a pastor, but i got to do something about this. So he, he waits a second, and he just cold-cocked the guy and dropped him with one punch. And all, all the people around, all the, the, the bystanders and everything started cheering and everything. And the, the police came, and he gave a report. And they're like, did you seriously just hit this guy once? He's like, I did. I, this was a, good, it was a good punch. And so Francis Chan asked his church, who all knew the guy, you know, he's one of the pastors of the church. He's like, how many of you would have felt emboldened to do the same thing, to come stand, and stand up for this elderly man who's, who's being hurt and, and beaten? And, and most of the church was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'd, we'd get out there. We'd, we'd be bold enough to stand and step up and, and help him out. And then he challenged them. He said, okay, well, how about this? He said, I asked, how many of you would go speak the gospel to a 75-year-old man who's sitting alone in a restaurant if you knew that he was not, an, not a Christian? Would you even engage in spiritual conversation with him? He asked, why is it that we find it easy to be courageous in physical matters, but difficult in spiritual matters? Why is it that we're cowards when it comes to speaking the gospel? Could it be that there's a deeper conflict going on? Could it, could it be that speaking the gospel is, is spiritual warfare? I think so. May we pray for great courage as we make the gospel known to people. May we be reminded to pray for the affliction of other missionaries, those in persecuted countries, and that God may grant us boldness in making the gospel known. May God embolden our hearts as we hear the example not only of Paul, but of those who are faithfully serving him. The third thing I wrote down about this passage is that suffering sharpens our vision. Suffering sharpens our vision. Paul goes on to say in verse 15, he said, to be sure. 
Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. Others, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. What's he saying? He's saying that, that, that some of the people who were emboldened to proclaim the gospel because Paul was in prison, some of them were doing it with, with impure motives. Some of it said, listen, the guy, the, the missionary, Paul, he's in prison. Maybe I could go and, and preach the gospel and people would start like patting me on the back. Maybe people would start buying my books, and, and, and uh, I, I, I'd start selling out stadiums, and, and uh, I, I could all of a sudden have this, like, you know, radio interviews, TV interviews, and uh, people, would, people would know who I was when I walked in a room. Yeah, all right. And so they had this, this like, self-centered platform ministry. It's crazy. Now, let me be clear about something. They were still preaching the gospel. That's why Paul was rejoicing. It, it, Paul cared about the content of the message very much. If you read the book of Galatians, you see right at the beginning of the book, he says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, a curse be on him. So, Paul was kind of serious about the message. Like, he didn't want the gospel being filtered or, or watered down or distorted in any way. So that's not what was happening here. These believers were still preaching the gospel, but they did so with wrong motives. Now again, does God care about our motives? Yeah. Yeah, he does. Jesus all the time was talking about the heart, right? The Pharisees all the time. They were doing the right things externally, but internally they were a mess. Jesus cares about our motives. But Paul said, I'm not going to get mixed up in that. That's not for me to deal with here. Paul, Paul's suffering had caused him to, to have a sharper vision. He says, listen, I'm just rejoicing that the gospel's being proclaimed. I'm not going to get caught up in all this nonsense and the debates and, and the arguments over whether they should be preaching or not. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to get sucked into that craziness. We as believers could learn a lot from this. We need a spirit of discernment today. We have so much information and so much craziness that comes at us in 2023, especially through social media. We need filters about the kinds of things that we just, we just need to walk away from. The insane things that we just need to not let ourselves get sucked into. Like, there was, there was an actual issue here. These believers... We're not serving with the right motives. But Paul knew that that wasn't his calling to go run off and try to help straighten them out. There were other times where God called him into that. Read the book of 2 Corinthians. The false, the, 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 they were actually false teachers that were coming into, into Corinth, but they were questioning and challenging Paul. And so he went down that road with them and defended his apostleship. But Paul here was like, I, I don't need... I don't need your circus right now. The gospel's being preached, and I'm just glad for that. It, it shows us Paul had some discernment, which we need to have. And it shows us that, that Paul, 
Paul's pride wasn't in the mix. He didn't have to be the one who was getting the credit. He didn't have to be the one whose face was on the billboard. It was okay. He's like, I'm just rejoicing that the gospel's getting proclaimed. Paul did not get distracted by his haters. He did not let them lure him into his game. And not only did he avoid being distracted by these troublemakers, he simply rejoiced that they were proclaiming the gospel of Christ. My brothers and sisters, we need to keep our eyes on the ball, keep, keep our eyes focused on the gospel and not get distracted by unnecessary debates, arguments, and even issues. But trust and look to God for His, His Spirit to guide us into the, the, the best, uh, most gospel-focused things that we need to be involved in. And the last thing I want to mention is that, that, that Paul was sustained in the midst of suffering. Paul was sustained in the midst of suffering. If you go back to the end of verse 18, he says, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. This was a way of life for the Apostle Paul. He was, he was a rejoicing man because he always was looking for God at work. And he says, I'm going to continue to rejoice because I know that this, he meant this trial, this imprisonment, will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Holy Spirit, or from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 19 is a little bit of a confusing verse to me. What, what does he mean by, this will lead to my salvation? Now, some, some commentators, because that word salvation, it's, it's the Greek word that most typically, almost always in the New Testament, it's used to refer to, to your spiritual salvation. Uh, you being saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, rescued from death and brought into life. Some commentators think that he's talking about him being saved from this circumstance. That he said that this is that my uh, my release from imprisonment uh, is is the reference here to salvation. It could be he does indicate later on in this chapter that he does expect to be released, but I don't think that's what he's saying. I I, I think he's truly talking about about his salvation before God, that this circumstance will lead to his salvation. If you remember, the New Testament talks about three different tenses with our salvation. I won't go into this too deeply, but it talks about our past tense, that is, we trust Christ as our Savior, as we embrace Jesus, we're saved from our sins, we're forgiven, we're set free, and we have, have a secured place in the presence of God. We've been given new life. All these words that the New Testament uses, we're redeemed, we're, we're, um, we're reconciled to God, we're justified and declared righteous in His sight. All these things have happened as we trust Christ as our Savior. And then the Bible also speaks about a future tense of our salvation, that we will be saved. I believe it's in First or Second Thessalonians. I didn't write the reference down. But Paul talks about the, the, the future, that I will be saved. And that he's talking about the, the, the final salvation, the final realization of all that we have in Christ when we're set free from sin, when we're given our new bodies and brought into the presence of God for all eternity, no longer having to have any sinful temptation, no more tears and mourning, no more death and dying, and that's all, all realized in a, in a final aspect of our salvation. But then the New Testament also speaks about our salvation in the present tense, that we are being saved. 
And this is the idea of sanctification, of us being increasingly uh, growing in our, our faith, turning away from sin and turning towards Jesus, growing in spiritual maturity. And I think that's what Paul's getting at. He says, I believe that this situation, me being stuck in prison, is going to result in my salvation, that is, in, in, in my becoming the kind of man that God wants me to be. Tim Keller has said this, Paul is saying, I rejoice because I know that this suffering and tragedy, whether I end up facing execution or not, it's saving me. It's making me into the man I want to be. It's refining me. It's making me more like the person that God wants me to be. It's making me more like my Savior, more a man of love, more a man of humility. It's not just that Paul is saying, God can turn my circumstances into good. God can turn my circumstances into gold. He's saying that God is turning me into gold. God is making me more like Jesus through this suffering. I'm telling you what, brothers and sisters, if we wrap our mind around this truth, if we wrap our mind around this truth, it absolutely is a game changer when we bump into the normal everyday stuff that we get irritated about, that we don't want in our life. It could be just the normal irritants of a coworker, and it could be all the way to those huge things, a death of a loved one unexpectedly, or, or a, 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 a terminal medical diagnosis, and everything in between. If we truly believe that God is saying, Jeremiah, you need this right now to become the man that I want you to be. If we grasp that in the moment, this is, a, this is a spiritual game changer. And I believe that Paul lived with that mentality. He says, I know that this will lead to my salvation. I know that this will lead to the kind of spiritual maturity God wants me to have. That's why he didn't whine and complain and gripe about his imprisonment. He was already expecting, okay, God, what are you going to do? But here's the thing, Paul didn't know. God didn't hand him the script ahead of time and said, just so you know, you're going to go to prison. It's going to take you like two years to get to Rome where you'll still be in prison, waiting trial, and you're going to be taken away from the opportunity to travel around and plant churches. But just so you know, there's going to be this unexpected growth among government officials and the military. Like you're going to get a chance to preach the gospel to people who would otherwise never hear your message. God didn't tell him any of that. But he lived with this trusting Jesus' expectation in the midst of it. My brothers and sisters, we're going to encounter stuff. We'll, you'll encounter stuff before the day's out. And you're, you'll be tempted to go down that path that could lead you to a place of bitterness, that could lead you to question God's love for you. But notice that he's not alone in this. And this, and this, this, is, this, is, this is beautiful. I'll, I'll wind it down with this. Notice that he says, in verse 19, I know that this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. It wasn't just that Paul, by himself, had to figure this out and how to figure out how to have the right attitude. You see, he says it's through, first of all, your prayers. Don't miss the significance. I know we've, we've bumped into prayer now for like, like every Sunday for the last month and a half. It's not, not an accident. God is, God is challenging us in the world of prayer. And he says, he's telling the Philippians, you have helped pray me through this. 
Your prayers have made a genuine difference in how I have faced this trial. That's big. Do you know that you can pray for somebody today who's in the midst of suffering and it can change their circumstance? It can change their heart posture. It, it, it can change their awareness of what God's doing. Prayer makes a difference. And Paul was telling the Philippians, because you've prayed for me, you've helped me understand that God is shaping my heart through this trial. That's a big deal. Don't tell me you can't do anything for God. Don't tell me that you don't have enough time to, to serve God or to bless other people. Right here is a way that you can literally change somebody's life today. When you get home, if you're not, if you're not on our directory app, number one, contact the office and get on the directory app. And number two, go through that directory and just begin praying for five families or five people a day in that directory. And better yet, pick one of them whether you know them well or hardly know them at all, and zip them a text or call them up and say, I want you to know I'm, I'm praying for you today, and I don't know you very well. Is there something I can pray for you about? You'd feel comfortable sharing. I just, I wanna, I'm praying that God would strengthen you in some way today. Is there, is there a specific way that I can do that? And know that as we're praying, that, that's, that's making a difference in the life of that person's walk with Jesus. But he says, it also is, he said, it's through your prayers, but also with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul wasn't alone. My brothers and sisters, one of our enemy's greatest tactics, tactics is to want you to think that you are alone today. That God doesn't care, that God's not here, and that nobody else cares. He wants you to believe that everybody's too busy with their stuff, and nobody cares about you. He wants you to know that God's not listening. After all, you've prayed about this, and God still hasn't taken away this thorn. God still hasn't taken away this suffering. Clearly, God doesn't care. The enemy wants you to believe that you're alone. And I want you to know that that's a lie from Satan. That's a lie from your enemy. And I don't care how long you've been walking with God, there will be those moments when we're tempted to think, maybe, maybe God doesn't care. I don't care how many Bible verses you can quote. How many Sunday school classes you've gone to? In the moment of those, those moments of temptation, the enemy will still be lurking in the background. And at times, those darts will hit home and you'll be like, well, maybe. Come back to the Word of God. Come back to the promises. There are a million passages that we could cross-reference here. But just to stay in the text, that, that he said, through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian today, you have the Spirit of Jesus Christ dwelling within you. You are not alone. You don't have to fight temptation and trials on your own. You are not alone. There's so much more we could say about that. He finishes this section with this statement. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always with all courage, Christ be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, listen, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but whether I die or I'm, I'm set free, I want Jesus to be honored in my life. I want the name of Jesus to be glorified. You see, we said it at the outset of, of this series, and we're going to keep coming back. Paul couldn't stop talking about Jesus. And it's because of his Christ-centeredness that allowed him to keep focus during the trials. Listen, we're not going to go home today and just grit our teeth and be able to say, okay, 
bad stuff? Come along. I know it's Jesus. I know Jesus is at work through the bad stuff. We're not going to be able to grit our teeth and get through the big stuff of, of suffering just by sheer force of will. But what happens is when we're constantly gazing at Jesus, we're constantly looking at him, when he is our love and our affection, we will, we, we will, our, our hearts will go to that place of, okay, you're at work here, Jesus. You're doing something, Jesus. Does that make a sense? It's not just by determining that I'm going to have a, a good attitude in trials. It's by looking to Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Paul experienced here an unexpected victory. You know as well as I do, we don't get to script life. We could all tell stories of how our lives have taken turns that we didn't expect. Some of them we definitely did not want. And God has been there and walked through those, those valleys. Even in the times when the, the, the turns were a result of our stupid choices or sin. God's still at work. God's still doing things. Paul didn't get to write the script for this situation. He didn't know what was coming, but he chose to submit himself to the work of God through his imprisonment, and God used that to take the gospel to unexpected places. I'll close with a story. One of the writers that I've been quoting uh, is, a, is a Bible scholar by the name of Peter T. O'Brien. Peter O'Brien is from Australia. He was, from, he's since gone home to be with the Lord. And um, as a young man, he, he grew up in a non-Christian home. His parents didn't know the Lord. And one of their next-door neighbors there in Australia was, was a, a Christian lady who had, had an incurable disease and was, was stuck at home and, and suffered a great deal. And in her, in her being homebound and, and, and stuck, she, she, she built a relationship with this family next door and began to share Christ. And through, through the way that she lived in the middle of her suffering, the, the, this next-door neighbor, this mom, was drawn to Jesus, just drawn to her attitude in her suffering, drawn to this Christ-like humility and gentleness, and embraced Christ. And this mom began to share the gospel with her son, Peter. And Peter trusted Christ and went off to seminary. And, and then from seminary, went overseas to India, where he learned a couple of Indian languages, because he was brilliant, got his PhD, and began preaching the gospel and, and, and leading thousands of Indians to Christ. He began teaching in a seminary and trained up Indian pastors and taught them the Word of God. Later in life, he came back to Australia and taught in seminary, began to write commentaries like the one that I refer to for Philippians, probably one of the, the best, maybe the best commentary in Philippians out there. All because a next-door neighbor said, I'm going to take this, Jesus. I don't know why you've allowed this. I've cried out to you to be healed from this disease, and I... And you haven't. And in her humility and, and humble walk with Christ through that, she led someone to Christ who led someone to Christ who got to preach the gospel and lead thousands of people to Christ. If God had come to her and said, you have a choice here. You can live a healthy life, go on doing what you want to do, and, and 
go about your normal circumstances, or you can take on this affliction that will dog you your entire life, but through it, you will lead someone to Christ who will impact an entire nation for Christ in thousands and thousands of pastors. I have a feeling that she would say, I'll take that. If I know that's what's going to come out of this, I'll take it. I'm willing to do that. But you see, that doesn't, that's not how life works. We, we don't get the script ahead of time. But every day we're faced with a choice to enter into suffering. To, what Paul's going to tell us is, is sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And we have a choice with how we're responding. We're, we can get bitter or we can become more Christ-like. We can dig our heels in and fold our arms or we can say, all right, Jesus, what's the opportunity here? What are, you, what are you doing in the middle of this to make me more like Jesus? And whose lives are you calling me to touch through this? And then trust him with that. Sometimes, like Paul, you get to see the results. Paul was getting to see the results live in person. And other people, like Job, never got to know why he suffered Never knew the millions of people his story would impact over thousands of years as his story was told and retold and preached. Never got to see any of that. He ended his life having no clue what was going on up in heaven with all that craziness at the beginning of the book and, and all the suffering that he went through. That might be you. You might be today in the middle of something or just about to walk into something and you get a choice how to respond, and you may not get to see the fruit of your faithfulness. But God's calling us, even without the script, to trust Him, to lean into what He's doing, to say, here am I, God. doesn't mean you, you can't pray for that to go away. doesn't mean you don't pray for it to end. But at the same time, praying, God, what, who am I supposed to be through this? What do you want to change in my heart through this? And how do you want me to live faithfully amongst your people, in front of my kids, my spouse, my coworkers, your church? How are you calling me to live faithfully in the midst of this trial? Paul was caught up with Jesus. When we're caught up with Jesus, we can have that same attitude. Let's pray. Father, give us the mind of Christ. As we encounter things that we would prefer not to encounter, as, as we are saddled with trials and struggles that we would prefer not to have. Give us the heart of Jesus. Give us a, a deep-seated trust in you and your goodness and that you're at work, that there's, there's, there's gold to be made in our lives through this thing. Father, give us a deep-seated trust in you that there are other people whose lives you want to impact through our suffering. Give us a, a Christ-centered mindset and a deep trust in you that no matter what comes our way, you're good and that you're, you're at work doing things that we can't see. Ah, help our unbelief, Lord. May we trust you for this. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in all your darkness and troubles, remember who you are and what you have. You've been loved with an everlasting love you are supported by everlasting arms. You are recipients of everlasting life and heirs of an everlasting kingdom, all sealed and made sure 
by the blood of an everlasting covenant. And it's in the precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.